Today we'll be reading from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Summertime. And the living's easy. Summer is, uh, is good. We could just take a deep breath together. We, we, there's parking is easier. There's like, you can sort of develop even an affection for the smell of trash. I've, I've learned over my 15 years in New York. Um, so uh, it's, 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 time to, it's time to chill. And um, uh, this is one of my most favorite passages in the, in the New Testament. It's something that I've returned to many, many times in my life just to draw practical help for for, for life in, in crisis moments, in, in ordinary moments, in really good moments. And um, I wanted to, to kick off this summer series of reflections. Uh, we're, we're, we're calling this series Everlasting Meditations on the Faithfulness of God. Um, we're going to have, I'm really, really thrilled for some of the voices that we're going to have sharing in this summer series. Um, people that have never taught at our church before, some, some friends, um, Edwin Cologne from the Recovery House of Worship, yeah, shout it out, um, is going to be here in two weeks. Um, it's just going to be, it's going to be a good summer. So I, I was thinking of how do we frame this up, um, and hopefully if I you know, do my job with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning, you'll be uh, anticipating in your heart and spirit, uh, just reflecting and soaking in the faithfulness of God throughout this summer. So I want to begin in uh, in an interesting space, I think. I hope it won't be too challenging for for July 7th for us to try to go here mentally together. But I want to begin this morning with a little exercise uh, to consider how we perceive the world and how we arrive at our understanding of meaning. If someone traps you in an elevator and they ask you the question, what's the meaning of life? Uh, What's your answer? Florida. Just kidding. (laughs) So I think my my thesis or theory is that, uh, and this is certainly not unique to me, but that all of us have some answer to that question, what is life really all about, right? And even if you might think of the answer to that question consciously sometimes or, uh, you know, or 
really often if you're someone who's like sort of of a philosophical bent and you're thinking about that all the time. I know a few people in our church who are literally always thinking about the nature of, of their being. And some of you like, that's never crossing your mind. You're just like, I have to go to Trader Joe's later. I have laundry to do. My boss is, has halitosis. There's a lot I'm dealing with right now. Like, um, but so it's either something that's, that's you really actively consider or it's something that kind of runs under the surface. Like all, when all the other programs are running, your meaning of life stuff is, is under there somewhere, but you might not think about it. And um, I, I think if you want to start to identify what your answer to that question, what the, what's the meaning of life, what's life really all about, one, a, a, a clue, a few places to check are like, what are the things that make you really angry? That, that might sort of those things might be connected to what you think is most important in the world. What are the things that make you really joyful? Not just like circumstantially happy, but truly joyful. What are the things that you find yourself consistently thinking about, consistently doing? Because even if you have like a, a pristine, I, this is my elevator answer to that question, what's the meaning of life, right? You actually have a functional meaning of life that you operate out of you know, generally on the day to day. And so if you wanna know what that is, you look at what makes you angry, what brings you joy, what do you find yourself consistently thinking about, what do you find yourself consistently doing? <clears throat> so to get at this consideration, I wanna give us a, a little bit of visual help this morning, and I wanna, I wanna say, I made these, these, these visual representations myself, so that's my disclaimer. Like, I'm not the world's greatest PowerPoint person, but we're gonna get through this together. And of course, huge disclaimer, any representation of like how you come to understand the nature of reality, your place in the world, and, and the meaning of life is, is probably not gonna, one chart's probably not gonna do it. But I did wanna give us a, um, a visual representation, even if it's incomplete, even if there's certain aspects of reality in our experience that it obviously can't touch. But at some point, you woke up in the world as a person. You, you, you like came to be aware, right? You were, you were alive before you came to be aware of it. But at some point, right, we, we had a few babies in this church born on July 4th, right? Right now they're totally just like, they're barely seeing, they're just being utterly and completely taken care of, all their needs are being met. But at some point, those babies are going to, to become aware of their personhood, uh, become aware of their self. And, and for our purposes this morning, we have the self represented by this little circle. Here's what I want to say as a disclaimer, right? This is a church. We, we think, you know, we're, we're about putting God in the center of the, of the story over and over again. I think that you'll see that, that that's going to bear out here. But what I'm talking about is how you first perceive life in the world. And the way you first perceive life in the world is as a self, as, 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 as a person, right? Not that the self is, is the center of everything, but, but you, and, and, and not that you haven't arrived as a self in the world without quite a bit of help. None of you decided that you were going to be born, I'm imagining, and if so, like, let's do a comic book about you right now. But you, you, you come into the world without much choice, but eventually we start to perceive our, our selfhood, okay? So, and, and ways that we've talked about it before, if you wanna break the self up, and there's, there's different ways of doing it, especially, go ahead, let's go to the next slide. When you, this is still the self here, still the circle, but when you, uh, you come to be aware of your body, and then there's this, uh, this part of us as human beings, if you've ever, and not to be too morbid, but if you've ever been to a funeral, you can look at the body, of the person and you know something is missing. There's a vacancy there, the person is gone, right? The body is there but the soul is missing. And right, our philosophers and theologians, you know, 
argue over exactly how to depict this. And once you engage with, with a relationship with God, the spirit is, 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 is a factor here. But in your perception of yourself, right, the first things that you use to perceive the world were the five senses, right? Your five senses, uh, taste, touch, smell, sight, hearing. You're taking in information from your outside world, right? The first smiling faces you keep regularly seeing that put, you know, feed you. And you're like, oh, I'm gonna smile because these people feed me, right? That's your, you, and that process works throughout your entire life, right? You also are processing this in the, non, in the non-material part of yourself. So our soul, for our purposes today, let's just talk about it as your mind, your will, and your emotion. So mind, you have the body part of the mind, the gray matter, the electricity, the neurons firing, the neural pathways. But we also have this sort of our consciousness, our ability to have thoughts, our ability to have imaginations, right? So we have our mind, we have a whole you know, series of files in our brain about how we perceive the world. We make choices with our volition, with our willpower, and that many of those choices are really meaningful from early on in life throughout, throughout, uh, through, throughout today. However you've arrived here today, you, you made choices this morning, what you would eat, how, how you would travel here. And we have emotional reactions to those right? I'm leaving a ton out, but I want you just to see, right, there's, there's a formative process that's been at work since you first became aware of being a person in the world that actually was running under the surface before you were aware of it at all that has been defining yourself. So obviously we're, we're leaving something out. So let's go back out to our, our, our picture of the self. And the next sphere out from that is relationships and environment, right? Right from the very beginning, a a human baby self can't take care of itself. As we were just mentioning, it has to have its needs met. So right away, the most important reality for yourself entering into the human story is what are the relationships that surround you? And then what what is the environment that those relationships are taking place in? So we're talking in very broad strokes, and I'm not trying to do deep psychological analysis here. We're just saying that the people around you, your family, and then immediately as you got even more aware of some friendships and some familiar faces, the, the, the relationships that, you, that were right around you informed the formation of yourself, and then the environment that you were living in also informed. So just thinking about it for a second, you, you may have come into the world as a self in a place where there was loving, kind, caring relationship around you that took care of all of your needs. But we also know there are some of our our stories that involve coming into the world into a harsh environment where there was neglect, where there was a a lack of care. Sometimes there was actually active abuse situations. So those, those relationships in the immediate sphere around the self really help form who we are as, as people, how our body and soul is shaped to live in the world. And then there's our environment, right? We know that it's possible to have a really harsh, maybe poverty-stricken or war-torn environment, and yet the environment right around the self is loving and, 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 and taking care and, and, and looking out for danger around, around this person and making sure that they're taken care of. Or you might have a really luxurious, comfortable, every physical need is met, but your relationships are distant the people are, are not, they're paying attention to their own story. They're not necessarily paying attention to you. Like all these things are really formative for how we come to understand our place in the world. All of this has a profound impact on how the self is formed. So 
You have your, your understanding of you. You know, your, your name is given to you. Your identity, you begin to grow into it. It's shaped by these relationships and environment. But if you have, let's say, best case scenario, you have a solid sense of who you are because it's been given to you by the people who love you, who have named you, who are taking care of you. They're, they're pouring good things into your life. You have a, a positive environment, a, a healthy, safe environment where you're, being, you're allowed to explore, you're allowed to play. But those things alone don't make for a meaningful life on their own. Like we also have to do something, right? If, you, if this is just all that we had and we weren't doing anything, most of us would you know, say we're pretty unfulfilled. So the next sphere out in our little depiction is meaningful action. And, and I wrestled a little bit with how to say this, but meaningful action is just basically everything that you do as a self in the context of your relational sphere and the environment that you've been that you've been born into so this is eating meaningful action ptl that's that's praise the lord um Play, right? We learn as kids through play. We learn, we learn through sharing, right? Like this was kindergarten. Like I did, I did poorly in kindergarten because I didn't like to share. As an only child, it's like these are my things. But you have to learn how to sort of socialize and engage. So meaningful action. You're learning. You're bonding. You're reading. Eventually, you're setting goals. You're 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 charting out accomplishments that you want to take in the world. You're falling in love. You're finding your vocation. You're like, I believe this is the work that I'm on the earth to do, right? Some of you have, have felt like I, I'm starting to understand, and it's, it's, it's a, you know, a thread woven together with these three different activities, but this is what I feel like I'm, me I'm meant to do in the world. So we come to understand the world as a self, in a, in a web of relationships, in a particular environment, taking meaningful action. I know this is overly simple, and you get this, but I, I, I want us to think for just a minute about that undercurrent reality that is always going in our life about how we answer the question, what's it all about? So I think you need at least this to have a flourishing life, right? You have to have a sense of self. You have to be in a, in a, in a sphere, a web of relationships. You have to have an environment where you can, you can live and thrive, and you have to take action that's meaningful in the world. But for many people, of course, this is not enough, right? You see this in all the stories that we tell over and over again across the ages, right? We're looking to connect with something that's bigger than just these three circles. And so many of us are, are looking for, for something that takes us beyond just ourselves, our world, our relationships, what we can do as, 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 as an individual, even as an individual in our immediate community. Most of us are longing for something that for our sake right now we'll just call transcendence, right? So this is the next fear out. I want something that means more than me. I want to be connected to something that's larger. I want to be a part of a bigger story. So for many of us, we fill, we, we fill out this next circle in our life at different, at different points. The answer can be different in, in, in your story, but you're looking for a cause that you can believe in. Many of us have, have experimented with religious belief and religious practice. Some of you are like, I'm on a spiritual pursuit right now. Some of you say, my life quest is, is this. I wanna, I wanna submit this contribution to the human community. Like I wanna do something that's bigger than me. Something that, 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 that connects you to something larger than just your perception and your pursuits. Now, in, in our story here in, in, uh, in the Christian understanding of the world as it's presented to us in the scripture, the, the furthest out circle, and this is where like the whole thing 
falls apart in a bunch of different ways, but we're just using this as a simple representation. The furthest circle out is God. And actually God touches every aspect of the whole reality, but God is the containing factor in, in the world as, as, the, as the world is presented to us in the scriptures. That God, so I, my hypothesis is that the more circles out that you go, the more chance at a meaningful, flourishing life that you're going to have. And if you can connect with that transcendence in a personal way and realize that there's a God who knows you, who loves you, who's actually was the genesis of the self in the first place. Actually, as Psalm 139 is true, that this God, this Yahweh, knit you together in your mother's womb, has had a loving, longing plan and hope for yourself since the very beginning and knit you together in this magnificent way that actually... To, ha- to see God through all of these spheres is the most meaningful and full life possible. But many of us start to think then about life in this way, that I've got to add these rings. I spend my energy trying to add the right relationships, trying to alter my environment. And like, this is essentially like the American dream is like get enough resources where you can add each of these rings right according to your preferences and you will make a meaningful, holistic, flourishing life for yourself. I have to add these things. And so we even make our spiritual pursuit of God that way. Like I've got, to, I've got to get all this stuff together. Like many people practically think, I got to get my stuff together and then I can add God on. The beauty and the power of the Christian story is that God, the last slide, right? In a sense, like there should be no circle. Like uncontained God is, is the full reality. It's the whole screen. It's the world. But that this God is actually moving in. This is the Christian doctrine of incarnation, that God moved onto the block. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that he took on a human self and had the same experience of being raised in a family that, that you and I have had, that, that most human beings have had of, of, of growing up with this web of relationships and environment around meaningful action, that God took on the human experience. That the, the doctrine of incarnation says that God has become a self. The doctrine of redemption is that God has lived the, the perfect life of a human self and that he's able to give that away as a gift because of his death and resurrection, that he's able to redeem us and fully unite us to God, right? And, and, the, and the chart doesn't d- d- depict this terribly well, but the reality is that God has been moving in towards us to pull us into his reality, to fill us with his life. Like the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit in the Christian story is that your very body, that body and soul picture from before, can be filled with the Spirit of God, that you can become a temple of the living God, that, that Yahweh could come to reside in your heart in a meaningful way, that you could come to actually know intimacy with God, not just as an idea of something outside of you, but as something that's come into the very heart of your life. The revelation of God in the scripture is that God is always previous and God is always continuing. So like in both directions, God is. And so that a foundation for life is the reality of of God's existence and God's faithfulness. That, (coughs) That God holds and contains all the other aspects of reality, but he engages with those aspects of reality in a relational way. That's, it's not just the divine you know, clockmaker who set things and is leaving it to tick on its own, but is engaged in the story, has entered history, right? So 
The miracle of the Christian story is that God is moving in to know us. So, we're going to consider this this idea a little bit throughout this summer. What, What would it mean to make a life, to build a life, to participate in a life where God was the fundamental defining reality of the world? And what would it look like, right? The question right alongside it is, what, what kind of life can you build if you ignore that reality? Because of course, we have volition, we have choice, we have the way that we've been formed. And for many people, it's really difficult to consider God as an all-encompassing reality of the world. But this passage in 2 Peter 1, I think is tremendously helpful for we're beginning this process, and we're gonna continue it throughout the summer, so we don't have to hit everything today. But I think that this, this, this passage that we read in 2 Peter 1 is one of the most stirring examples of how you might actually build a flourishing life on a foundation of God's faithfulness that actually if the meaning of life is relationship, like the most important thing is, is to, to be in relationship and then the meaningful and loving action that flows out of that relationship, right? If Jesus was right, he summarized the whole thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be so kind and attentive to their needs as if they were yours. Like, that is a very relational framework for human life. If the meaning of life really is relationships, how would you build a flourishing life on the foundation of God's faithfulness, of God's relational commitment to God's promises. And that's what we wanna look at. So right off the, the start of this letter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, uh, there's like, I'm gonna say there's five things and you're gonna think, wait a minute, like it's a summer sermon, chill, okay? But I'm gonna go so fast through them that you're gonna be like, wow, that was nothing, that was easy, we could take more, okay? So remember how this passage starts, right? Simon Peter, right, who are we talking about here? We're talking about this man who was a fisherman, who was called by this person, Jesus, to come and follow him, who walked in this relational process of walking with Jesus, who saw him live and teach and do miracles and sleep and interact with his family. He lived, and then he failed a bunch. He went back to fishing. He denied Jesus at the most crucial moments. He's restored by, by God's grace at that, uh, at that famous fire after Jesus' resurrection where he restores Peter. Peter from his denial. This is Simon Peter, the rock, right? A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. The first two things I want to mention are right here in, the, in these opening sentences. And, and, and number one is this word righteousness. The, I know you guys are like, please show it to us in the Greek. We'd love to see that. Just like, I mean, I don't know Greek. I copied and pasted this from a program, so relax. But why I put it up here, this word dikasune is the righteousness of God, and it is all over the New Testament. And one of the most pressing theological debates of the last 
20 years, among some of the theologians I read the most is how do you translate this word, the righteousness of God? And, and, and part of the debate is like the righteousness of God, does that just mean God's goodness is sort of given to us to wear like a blanket? And there's aspects of the New Testament where it does seem like that. It's like put off your old self and put on Christ. Like drape the goodness of God over you and eventually like through osmosis it seeps in and, beco- and becomes a part of you. Like righteousness is right standing. Like if, if you are redeemed by the work, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, then you can be in right standing with Yahweh. You can be in right standing with God. And that's certainly an appropriate understanding of this word righteousness. But I think um, N.T. Wright and other scholars have, have, have done a lot of work to understand that this, this word righteousness basically can be translated best covenant faithfulness. Why is that important? I'll read the sentence with with that in there. To those who through the covenant faithfulness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So basically, like, God being true to God's relationships, first with, with Abraham and then with Israel and now with us, that God's consistent truthfulness, reliability, integrity to what he's promised is what gives us something. It gives us a faith as precious as ours, a confidence in that relational trustworthiness of God. What he's, uh, what he's saying is essentially, essential to the nature of God is a reliability, an inner truthfulness and integrity especially in the sphere of relationships. So this means when God makes a promise to you, God will absolutely keep that promise. When God makes a promise to Israel, God will absolutely keep that promise. And a huge part of the narrative of the scriptures is people testing that reality out, finding if if they can actually rely on it to be true. So it's really important because Some of you can think of incredibly painful moments in your life where you started to call the faithfulness of God into question and say, God, I thought you were gonna provide this for me. I thought you were gonna do this for me. I didn't think you would allow this to happen. And we subtly substitute our own metric of what we expect from God into the place where righteousness is in this, in this sentence. <laughs> and we put our metric for evaluating God. And so we say, God, you can't be faithful because my father died this way. Or you can't be faithful because this, I haven't ever come to have a relationship like I, like I expected. Or you can't be faithful because I haven't gotten the job. Like I thought that you were leading me to come to New York and all the things that I thought would come with that haven't, haven't come yet. And so what we do is we take a human metric for evaluating God and we put it on him and we say, you're not faithful to my understanding of what you should be doing. It's basically what we're in, we end up saying. And God is saying, But better than that, I am absolutely faithful to every covenant I make. Every promise that I make, you can absolutely count on. No word that I give will ever fail. Now that's two different types of confidence. One is a type of confidence in my perception of what God should be doing, and God will fail that all the time. The other is to say, I'm going to build on the foundation of what God has promised, and I'm going to make a life on the foundation of those promises because I know 
No matter what in the timeline of my life it happens to look like, that God never abandons his covenant faithfulness. He never, like the preciousness in that sentence is that you can have confidence in what God has promised, that you can't actually have confidence in, in the lacquer of your expectations that you might have painted God with. Sometimes that comes through, right? And that's, when that comes through, right? When your expectations of what God is supposed to do comes through, many times what that leads to you being is difficult to be around. Because you become sort of spiritually arrogant, like God's doing what I thought God would do. And, and you can become like, this, all my prayers get answered, right? Some people experience like a, a honeymoon stage in their first relationship with, and, and when they come into a relationship with God where it's like, yeah, everything that I'm praying for is happening. Like I'm feeling God's presence so much. Like all my expectations are being exceeded. And then we come to a place like all the theologians, all the saints talk about like a dark night of the soul. Essentially, this is a time in your life where your expectations for what God was supposed to be doing start to break down because God's not following the plan anymore. Because God has to shift you off of imagining that his faithfulness is based on what you expect him to do and to lay it on the firmer foundation of his promises or in this, as this is translated, his covenant faithfulness. The promises that accompany being united to God through Jesus and redemption. That is the doorway that opens us up to all the promises that God made to Israel the promises that God's made, like this is why in, 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 in the letter to the Corinthian church, Paul's like, all the promises of God are yes for us in Christ through this relational embrace of the redemption of Jesus, we become participants in the covenant faithfulness of God. And that's why we can have things like the hymn of security in Romans 8. Neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor anything in all creation is able to snatch us from the love of God. The, the only mistake we, we need to be careful not to make is that we, we replace neither height nor depth nor angels or demons nor anything in all creation is able to remove me from getting what I think God should do out of my expectations, right? That's a clunky way of saying it, but basically, when, when you make the rubric, the measurement of God's faithfulness, is he meeting what you think he should do, you will be disappointed quite a bit. But whether you can feel this right now or not, this passage is saying, if you will build on this other foundation, which is God's covenant faithfulness, and no matter what the circumstantial rise and fall of your life is, you will never be disappointed because God will not abandon his own righteousness. He will not stop being true to himself. He will not stop being a good father. He will not stop calling you my beloved sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. You don't have to earn my love. It's been earned for you by Jesus and you're fully brought and you're made in my image. So, this faith, as precious as ours, is basically a confidence in the covenant faithfulness, in the promises that God's made. Okay, I know, like, we went deep into that sentence. You guys did fantastic. We're gonna keep, keep moving. Let's read the next part. That was, that was the first two points. We're already to three. I got nine minutes, five seconds left. We have plenty of time. Okay, his divine power 
So Yahweh's strength, Yahweh's power has given us everything we need for what? For a godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. So just to focus on a couple of those things. We're gonna leave it right on the screen for a second. His divine power, out of the full resources of God's strength, he has given you something. What? Everything you need. Out of the full resources of God's strength, he's given you everything you need. Everything you need for what? For the American dream to come true in your life according to your expectations? No. For a godly life. Whatever is being talked about there, he's given you everything. And let me tell you, the phrase, everything we need, is the arena where faith or, or doubt plays out, where, where temptation and sin and the whole struggle plays out in that, in that phrase right there, everything we need, right? I, like in the first temptation and every type of temptation all the way through is essentially the question, is God really going to give me everything that I need? Is God really going to meet the deepest needs of my life, right? That's essentially what, our first parents in the garden struggled with. The temptation, the lie came in that God was keeping something from them. That in order to get at true life, at, full, at fullness, at, at being like God, they had to do something else. And that's a temptation, that, that archetype of temptation is what plays out all across the human story. Can you get what you need relationally? Can you get what you need in influence in the world? Can you get what you need materially? Can you get what you need in your soul and your emotions and your, and, your, and your will? And if you answer the question, I have to go and get it on my own, essentially that's the heart of sin. It's to say, I cast off the provision and fatherhood of God and I'll do it myself. And it doesn't all have to look like base and evil and obviously broken. Sometimes it can look like really high overachieving. But it's essentially to say, I'm gonna meet the deepest needs of my life on my own, and I'm not gonna take God into account. Over and against that, this is saying his divine power has given us everything we need for what? For a godly life. The translation of the word life there is zoe. So we have in the New Testament, the word life is used a bunch, and sometimes it's bios, just meaning like my body, you know, like, my, 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 my biological life, and sometimes it means spiritual life, and this is what it's translated here, zoe, a godly life, a spiritual life absolutely relationally linked in to God, pertaining to God's character. He gives you everything you need for a zoe life intimately knit to God. So the circumstances of that life might be wildly successful or utterly destitute. <laughs> like, you look at the story of the saints across the ages, and their circumstances of their life couldn't be more different, but this promise is saying, this Yahweh, God, has given you everything that you need for a Zoe life, for a godly life, built on God's character. So, one more chart, not as cool as the other one. <laughs> If we have the faithfulness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, basically God's integrity running in, in all directions. This is a timeline, right? So all the way into eternity past and all the way into eternity future, God is. 
When Moses meets God at a bush that's being burned but not consumed, God finally shares his name and he says, I am. Basically like, wherever you are, I'm present. All the way in the past, all the way in the future, God is. Now, essentially what this passage is saying is that extending faithfulness of God is a foundation long enough, wide enough, high enough, true enough for you to build your very short life on. That whenever you come to begin to perceive a self, your life is, has, has begun, right? You're just sort of like uh, up and running. Um, I, this is so awful, but a friend of mine, we were sharing our favorite, um, like our ideal days. Like say you had 24 hours, money was no object. You could do anything you want. You can wake up in any reality. What do you want to do right from the first moment your eyes open? Give your ideal 24 hours. It's a fun exercise. Do this at brunch later. One of my friends said his ideal day was to wake up running down a hill into a pile of puppies. <laughs> that's the best first answer I've ever heard. Like, but like, that's kind of how life happens. You just sort of like, I'm alive and I'm going down. It's like already happening to me. Like, here we go. That's how many of us perceive that. Just think about that. Let's just stop the sermon and think about running downhill into a pile of puppies. Just, ah, oh, they're just... It's wonderful, okay? You come alive in the world, right? And you're like, I didn't choose to be here, but here I am, and whatever's happening in the world, good or bad, now it's happening to me. I'm a part of the story. What's something that I can get confidence that this life is going to work out? That's a huge question. How can you know that this thing you didn't choose to begin but is now here and the only way out is tragic, is going to go well, and according to what standards and measurements? Like, when we're saying meditations on the faithfulness of God, I'm not saying, like, let's just have a sort of lame summer series that can cover anything. I'm saying, what are you building your actual life on? Because you have woken up running downhill, and I don't know if there's a pile of puppies down there or a lake of fire, but like, here we are. What's gonna happen? This passage is saying, hey, waving a flag of confidence, saying you can build a life on the faithfulness of God. And even though circumstantially, at many points, it may be disillusioning to you because it won't look exactly like you think it should look, but God has never abandoned his promises. He's never stopped having integrity. He's never been like, I really was going to redeem you and I know we had that thing going but now I see what you're really like so I'm out. His faithfulness extends in both directions and you can be sure and confident that you can build a life on the faithfulness of God. The next little section says that He called us to himself, and the source of that call is his own glory and goodness. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this, but when you see glory, and we sing glory in all the Christian songs, what, that's not something that like we're adding to God because he didn't have it. It's like we sang, and then God started to shine a little bit more. We glorified him. No, it's like this was always true of God, and when God reveals what's always been true of God, it's God being glorified. So when God's glorified in your life, it essentially means that you live in a way that reveals God for who God is. 
And he's saying, I called you into my family, to myself, by my own glory and goodness, by my revealed character and the goodness present in that revealed character. And through those two things, his glory and his goodness, he's given us something. It says he's given us his very great and precious promises. So, This is right in line with the righteousness translation of earlier, the covenant faithfulness of God. When God makes a promise, God absolutely will keep that promise. So an exercise for you, if you wanna like make this your summer devotional, go and look through the New Testament for the promises God has made to someone who's united to Christ. See if you could list out the promises that God has made to the people who are united to Christ and then know that no matter what is playing in your mind, no matter what color is presented to you by your moods, no matter what circumstance happens to be going on in your life, those promises are absolutely true. Your circumstances are going to change. Your mood is going to be altered. The ticker tape of thoughts in your mind will shift around, but the promises of God is a foundation that you can count on. It really is a stable place to build a life, and there actually is a way in in your given day to, to replace the mood or the thought or the reaction to circumstances that you might be having with a promise from God, hold that in your mind. Take the old thought captive and replace it with the promise of God and let that promise sort of be like a balm over your mind and heart. And, and what that is is faith. It's, it's living based on a promise of God even when you don't immediately feel it or see how it might come true. And then what happens is that faith covers your mind and heart with the shalom of God. Philippians 4 talks about this. Present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends human understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Basically, find a wedge out of just your thoughts, out of just your mood, out of just your circumstances and wedge into the promise of God. Let the promise of God guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It says that through the promises of God, you participate in the divine nature. This is one of the most rich, poetic, beautiful phrases in the New Testament. Basically, like, God's made these promises, and when you count on them as true, and you live as if they are true, you begin to participate with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the community that God has shared from the very beginning. The things that are true about God begin to show up as true in your life. You participate in the divine nature. How on earth would you even know what the divine nature is like? Is it just like I feel really strong and really confident? Or is it the fruit of God's spirit in someone's life we don't have to guess at? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things begin to be produced in the, in the soil of your actual soul. You become a participant in the divine nature. How? By living on these promises. I know I'm just being very, very slow and specific here, but this has changed my entire life. And, and I, I, I want you to get it. And it says that. Through these very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, right? And we le- read evil desires and we imagine like someone like you know, doing this and thinking about stealing diamonds or murdering someone or starting a war, like caused by evil desires. I want you to hear that phrase and know that what it means is desires that can't deliver on their initial promise, 
So what's being set up as a, in a rivalry here are a set of desires labeled evil desires here because they can't deliver what they're, what they're saying they can deliver over and against God's promises. So how do you escape the corruption of a whole life system built just on human thoughts and human desires that aren't necessarily going to deliver what they promise? The way out, having escaped that reality by building on the promises of God, by taking the promises of God and counting on them as if they are true and living as if they are true and then beginning to experience that, experience that oh yes, they are indeed true. This is why old people are so helpful. You get around someone who's lived a life and they're 80. And and I've had a a chance to be around a few people like this and they've kept their heart tender by counting on the promises of God. They've exercised faith even when it would have been easier to sort of stagnate into just a human routine and let the world shape and define their their desires. And they get to the point where they're at the end of their life and they're talking and like tears just roll down their eyes when they mention Jesus. There's just like a sweetness and a tenderness Right, we, you also have seen like the, the grumpiness and the anger and, the, and, the, and the, the, the brittle heart of someone who's been so discipled by disappointment that they come to the end of their life and they say it was dust. It's sand in my mouth. That's the two promises, right? You're going to build your life on promises one way or another. Either the promises that are presented to you out of your own self or out of the desires of this world or out of the covenant faithfulness of God. God saying, here's what I have for those who are united to me. On that foundation, I'm just gonna read this and close. It says here that you can build a life, basically. Like that you can rest on that faithfulness and then you can build on that faithfulness. Like some of you might be in a season where you just like need to rest on it. Just lay back and rest on the faithfulness of God. Some of you are ready to begin building a life on the faithfulness of God. And literally the step-by-step Ikea instructions for how to do that are right after this. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Again, I promise I'm just gonna read it. Right off the surface, what does that mean to be ineffective and unproductive? It's basically to say like the fruit of the spirit, the participation in God's nature is not taking place. What's going on? We're not building, many times we're not building our life on the foundation of this faithfulness. And a great exercise if you wanna go deeper in this passage is to literally go through those things. Add to faith goodness, to goodness knowledge. What would it mean in my life to to think about growing on the faithfulness of God in each of these areas. And the two big categories, essentially this is saying work the faithfulness of God and its implications out into every aspect of your life. Let it color everything. Yourself, your, your body, your soul, your habits, your choices, your preferences, your relationships, mutual affection and love. It's the two big categories that Jesus said everything hinges on, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, the self and, the, and your relationships. And the last sentence of the passage says that we receive a rich welcome 
into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that one day, if you do it right, you're gonna walk through the pearly gates and it's gonna be eternal choir practice and whatever roller coaster you can imagine. You're gonna wake up running downhill into a pile of puppies. What it means is that right now, the quality and nature of the divine life is activated in you and you're a full participant now in the eternal life. The eternal life isn't something that begins when you die. It is a quality of life that is connected with being in union with God now and that doesn't end because God's faithfulness doesn't end. His covenant faithfulness doesn't end. So, I'm gonna pray for you. Great job, we kicked off this series together. Very proud of all of you. I'm gonna pray for you and then I wanna give you three sort of categories of response. The first is some of you, it's summertime. It's a little bit of a downshift in energy in the city, hopefully in your life. Some of you just need to rest. You need to lay down and stop holding anything back and just lay down, maybe physically and spiritually, on the faithfulness of God. And just for a few minutes, know that God's promises are true no matter how you feel about them right now, and just rest. Just literally lay yourself down on the presence of uh, uh, the promises of God and, and rest and receive that rest from God. Some of you are like in a stage of activation. You need to go through that list in, in this passage. You need to say, how can I build, how can I add knowledge? How can I, how can I exercise this goodness that's true? Like what are the fruit of the spirit in my life right now? Where are the places that I need to, to take steps of mutual affection and love? And you need to literally go through that list because you can rest on the faithfulness of God and you can build on the faithfulness of God. Jesus has a fantastic parable about that, about building on, on, on his actual words. And then, so rest and build, that's the first two invitations. And the third one is, is really more specific. Some of you, you know really emotionally, painfully what it is to be in a crisis of confidence in God. Like I mentioned quickly, your thoughts and your moods and your circumstances, but right when you're in the the hurricane of those things, it doesn't seem easy just to trust the promises of God. So some of you, you need a breakthrough where where like the faithfulness of God can come shining through the clouds a little bit. If you're in a crisis of confidence in God right now, I wanna invite you to press into his promises, to hold on to them for dear life. I would love, uh, the people in a, a part of our prayer team would love to pray for you over a specific thing if you're having a crisis of confidence in God. We'd love to pray for you. So those are the three invitations, to just rest in God's faithfulness, to begin building in some specific way that he's inviting you, or to trust him if you're in a place of a crisis of confidence in in God's faithfulness. I'm gonna pray for you. The Holy Spirit would fill us and direct us in these last moments. We're gonna stand, we're gonna worship, we're gonna come to the table, we're gonna come onto these beautiful shaggy rugs and pray and, and worship together. We're just gonna spend the rest, the next 10 minutes just responding to whatever the Spirit leads. Come to the table, come forward for prayer. Let's worship and sing. If you need prayer for any of those three things, resting on God, building on God, or a crisis that you're in the middle of right now, please come forward and let someone pray with you and for you, right? Coming forward is not a sign that you're particularly jacked up. It's just a sign that you wanna respond to what God's saying. We all need it. All right, that's it. We did it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the richness and the truth of your word. 
I pray that you would continue to ring out the truth of this passage into our hearts and minds throughout the rest of this day, throughout this week. May we be people who come to utterly count on your promises, utterly count on your faithfulness, to rest on it, to build on it, to run to it in our times of, of urgent need. I pray, come Holy Spirit right now, fill this space, fill each person. Show us the way we are meant to respond by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And I wanna personally thank you, Lord, because I have late at night and early in the morning and many times in my life, I have clung to this promise. It has carried me through anxiety. It has carried me through stupid failures. It has carried me through so many things. I pray you would teach us to hang on to these promises for dear life. In Jesus' name, amen.